uses some very harsh words. He says to them, ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God. So they're worldly. They're, they're kind of backsliding. They got their focus wrong. They're, they're allowing the world to influence them instead of allowing the word of God to influence them. And finally, we learn as the last week or so, verses 7 through 11, that James is calling them to patiently endure the suffering and the trial that they are in. Hope for the return of Christ in the midst of your circumstance. And now James is going to close his book. He's going to deal with this church in need of spiritual restoration. And the question that we have is, what is he going to emphasize? What is he going to instruct this church to do? What is going to be the topic? What is he going to deal with in the book of James? Let's... Go to prayer, and then we're going to read verses 12 through 18. That's going to be our text. Let me pray first. Father, we come to you right now. We thank you for our time together. We thank you for the word of God that is so convicting, the word of God that is so true, the word of God that leads and guides and directs us. I pray right now, Father, that you would just bless the preaching and the teaching of your word today. I pray, God, that you would help us to respond well to your word today, God, that we would apply it to our lives and we would live according to your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 12, James is going to tell us what not to do. And then verses 13 through 18, he's going to tell us what to do. Verse 12, he tells us what not to do. It says, But above all, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, But let your yes be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. Once again, James is dealing with what's coming out of their mouth. He's dealing about what they're saying. The Jewish people at the time kind of had a custom that uh, they weren't really people of their word. They would make a promise or make an oath and they'd say, I promise I'm going to do something. And then they didn't really do it. And, and they kind of thought and kind of had the mentality that only if I evoke the name of God in my oath or in my promise, then, then it's binding, then it's real. We kind of did that when we were kids, right? Remember, remember when you were kids, you'd cross your fingers, you know, and you'd tell your, fr- your friend or your mom and dad, I promise I'll do it. And then you, but I crossed my fingers, it didn't work, it didn't matter. I don't have to do it. You know, that's kind of what they were doing. As Christians, our word should be trusted. We, should be, we, we shouldn't have to make any oaths or any kind of promises like that. We should just have, um, our word should just be trusted uh, in itself. We don't need to uh, evoke the name of God to it or anything like that. And besides, as a Christian, I don't live my Christian life by making a bunch of promises to God. I, I, I fail at that. I believe there's only one promise keeper, and it's God. And I live my Christian life not based on what I promised God I'm going to do. I live my Christian life based on the promises that God's made. How many of you know he's a lot better promise keeper than me? Amen? 
that's where I'm going to put my faith. I'm going to trust in what God says. If God says he's going to do it, then he's going to do it. Amen. So verse 12 tells us what not to do. Verse 13, we're going to begin here, and we're going to see a pattern. We're going to see a word that's repeated like in every verse. We've got to ask ourselves this question. What is James going to tell these people to do who are suffering? What is the solution to people who need spiritual restoration? What, what do they need? What, what is the solution to their circumstance? These people are weary. They're worn out. They have been uh, uh, abused. They have been persecuted. And they're in need of a lot of help. And verse 13 begins with a series of questions. There's about three questions that he's going to ask here. In your Bible, anytime you have a question, you might want to pay attention to that. Okay, I mark my questions specifically. Because who's the real author of the Bible? Well, it's God, right? The Holy Spirit. God, this is God's word, right? James, we know, is the person who wrote it and all that. But yet, it's, ultimately, it's God who wrote the book. And when God asks a question... So he asked that question because he needs to know something. For example, in Genesis, after the fall, when Adam and Eve ate the piece of fruit and they went and hid themselves, God showed up, didn't he? God come walking in that garden and God asked the question, Adam, where art thou? Did God ask that question because God needed to know something? No. He asked that question because he wanted Adam to recognize the reality of his situation. He wanted Adam to recognize something's wrong here. I'm not where I'm supposed to be. Something's not right between me and God. So God asked him a question so that he can deal with the reality of his circumstance. This morning, God's going to ask a question. Here's our question, verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Is anybody here going through some hard times? Is anybody here going through some difficulty? Are you in the midst of a trial? Do you have a burden upon your heart? Are you, are you struggling with something? Are you really going through some hard times? Are you suffering? Why does he want to ask us that question? Because we as Christians walk in reality. We are not some kind of mystical religious system that doesn't recognize reality that lives like in another world and, and, and doesn't recognize or, or, or confront our, our situation. No, as Christians, we traverse in truth. We, we live in reality. We recognize our circumstance. We recognize our situation. But sometimes even as a Christian, multitudes of Christians, we come to church and we sort of put on our mask, don't we? I mean, you come to church, right? You know, you get all dressed up, get all ready to go, and you, you walk into the church building, and who is, who is at the doors at the church building but the greeters? And the greeters say to you, 
Good morning, brother. How are you doing? And what do we do? We put on our Christian mask. We got a great big old Christian smile and we say, I'm doing wonderful, brother. But in reality, we're not. In reality, we're suffering. In reality, we're having hard times. In reality, we're going through a trial. And I think God wants us to pull the mask off and come to church and, and, and recognize I've got problems and I'm coming here today and I'm hurting and I need my brothers and sisters to help me in my my trial right now. I've come and I need some help this morning. I come, I need some prayer support. I come, I need to have somebody listen to my burden. We need to walk in reality. We need to recognize that not everybody coming to church this morning is doing well. You may have a brother or a sister sitting next to you that's really going through a hard time and a difficulty. And they're looking for somebody that will reach out to them and minister to them and love them. Is there any among you who are suffering? He's going to give a solution here. And it seems as though it's a very simple one. This is what James says. Is there any among you suffering? Here's the answer. Here's the solution. Here's what he's going to tell us to do. Let him pray. Let him pray. The question we have this morning is this. Is that enough? I mean, don't you look at that and maybe you're in the midst of a trial right now and you're thinking in your mind, is that it? Is that all? I'm just to, I'm just to pray? I mean, is James leaving some things out here? Is James, did he miss some things or something? I mean, this is a great opportunity for James to write 10 reasons, 10 ways to overcome your suffering, 10 ways to get rid of the pain, right? I mean, he could have done that, but he didn't. He says, let him pray. Let him turn to God. Here's a question. Has Jesus supplied the local church with enough resources to help people who are suffering? Is it sufficient to tell people to go pray? The reason why I bring that up is because there's a lot of people who say no. There's pastors, evangelical leaders, people on the radio that tell you that if you're suffering, you're going through something, you need help. Above and beyond what God does. You need to turn to some other sources. You need to turn to some other ways. Some other uh, 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 sources to help you in the midst of your trial. James kind of leaves some things out. He could have said, is there any among you suffering? Let him turn on the TV at about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And listen to Dr. Phil. And see what Dr. Phil and Miss Oprah have to say. But he didn't do that. He said, let him pray. He could have said, you know, you could just go down to the local bookstore and get to the self-help section and grab you a bunch of books 
based on the wisdom that is from the world and read through that and find the, the, the latest fad and have that help you in the midst of your trial. But he didn't say to do that. James said, turn to God. Is God enough? Is there enough power in prayer? Is there enough power in turning to God to help us in the midst of our trial, in the midst of our difficulty, in the midst of our suffering? I believe the Word of God teaches the sufficiency of Scripture. I believe the Word of God teaches the sufficiency in God, the sufficiency in Christ, the sufficiency in the Holy Spirit. I'll give you one verse. It says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. What's it telling us? It's telling us you have everything you need to live this life and to live a godly life in the knowledge of God. The Scripture teaches us, yes, God is enough. You can turn to God. You can turn to Him and find the power source that you need to overcome your situation and your circumstances. I can't tell you, hey, turn to God and it's all going to be taken care of and God will just rid the problem. Many times God walks with you in the valley. God walks with you through it. Just for a word of clarification as well. I'm not against counseling. There's such a thing as biblical counseling though. There's a difference between biblical counseling and the counsel you get from the world. If you'll notice, the counsel you get from the world keeps you in the counseling room. They keep you coming back. Well, they've got to pay the bills, so they, you know, they've got to keep you coming, right? There's no solution to it. But biblical counseling always turns you to God and there's a solution to it, okay? God wants, God wants to get you out of the counseling room. God wants to set you free, and I believe He can. I believe the Bible teaches there's power in prayer. I just don't think we've ever swam the depths or, or, or gone into the depths or mined the depths of the power of prayer. What is the suffering to do? He tells them to pray. So let me ask. How's your prayer life? Now, I know, right here at this moment, all of us can use some improvement in our prayer lives. None of us are praying probably like what we want or praying like what we should. We all can use improvement in the prayer closet. But I want to tell you something. I don't think we've swam this depth. I don't think we've touched the power that is in the prayer closet. I don't think we've touched on the power that is available to us. Listen, remember the book of Hebrews? Remember the teaching that we got from that? What do we got out of the book of Hebrews? We have an eternal heavenly high priest who has made a way for us. We have an anchor within the veil. We have access to God. God because of what Jesus Christ did at the cross. And you have access to the God of the universe. You can turn to God and you can find power. You can turn to Him and there is power in prayer. So let me ask you something. How are you doing? 
Do you have a place to pray? It helps to have a place to pray. For some people, they may have a room in their, in their house, a, a special chair they can go to, or a special place that they can go to pray. Find you a place. It doesn't have to even be in your house. Some people, they find a, a place of prayer in their car. I had an evangelist friend of mine, and he did a lot of traveling, and while he was in the car, he prayed. That was his place of prayer. Susanna Wesley raised kids. She was a homemaker, that kind of stuff, very busy. But the kids knew that when Mama flipped her apron up over her head, leave her alone. That was her prayer closet. That's That's the only way she could do it. So she just flipped it up over her head and began to pray. Whatever you do, find a place to pray. Find a time to pray. Some people are better early in the morning. Some people are late at night. Find what works and find you a place to pray and find you a time to pray. But our message this morning is dealing with the power of a praying church. I don't think we have exhausted that power yet. I don't think we've tapped into all the power there is in the power of praying. He says to the suffering, let him pray. There's also some more people in church, more people he deals with here in verse 13. Is anyone cheerful? God is there with you at the lowest point in your life, but he's also there. When you're full of cheer, the church, a good church, recognizes there's people that come into the building on Sunday mornings that are uh, hurting, that are suffering, but there's also those that come and things are going well. It's a time of cheerfulness in their life. And we want to walk with people in every situation, in every circumstance. We visit the people in the hospital while they're suffering. We also visit the people who are full of cheer. This week, one of the families in the church, a baby was born. It's a time of great cheer. We have baptism, a time of great cheer. A lot of our young people are graduating uh, this month. It's a time of cheer, a time of rejoicing. So we celebrate. As Travis mentioned earlier, Sometimes we focus so much in our prayer life and all the stuff we need from God and all our sufferings and all our, our, our heartaches. Sometimes we need to make a list of all the things we're thankful for. Why don't we make a list of what all God has done that brings cheer into our lives? God is a God of rejoicing. He's a God of cheerfulness. There's many celebrations throughout the Bible. It just makes me wonder what heaven's going to be like. I think we're going to have a lot of celebrations. I think there's going to be a lot, of, a lot of parties, if you will. Do you ever think of God as a party? Party animal? A party God? But I think there's a sense, as you read your Bible, God is all into us having a lot of fun. I mean, I know that God's serious, and I know we need to take a lot of things very serious, and we don't want to get too carried away with that, but yet... The Bible says in his presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. I'm looking forward to it. I don't know about you. I want to celebrate. I think that's what we're going to be doing in heaven. A lot of celebrating. A lot of praise. A lot of worship. He tells those who are cheerful, what are they to do? The same thing he told those that are suffering. Sing. Praise. Worship. Turn 
to God. If you're suffering, turn to God in prayer. If you're cheerful, turn to God in praise and in worship and in song. Verse 14, it's going to give us another question and identify some more people to us. Is anyone among you sick? Now we're going to delve into some difficult interpretation stuff here. It's kind of a hard passage. There's a lot of people that question a lot of the stuff that he's going to talk about here. I believe in context the, the real focus is spiritual restoration. But a lot of people look at this as physical restoration. And so I just want to address some of that. I'm going to address both of them uh, to help us. Um, I, I'm, I'm not going to give a comprehensive answer to everything for you. Um, I don't know everything. I don't understand a lot of things about, about uh, God and, and why he does some of the things he does. Um, but let's just take the approach to the, the physical sickness here for a minute. We need to ask some questions. A lot of people ask, is, is divine healing for today? Are there miracles today? Does, is it always the will of God for a person to be healed? People take these verses and, and use them uh, to, to um, uh, teach that God heals all the time, that it's always the will of God to heal and that kind of stuff. When I was growing up in my church, they, they took this uh, very literally. Look at what it tells them to do here. It's going to tell them to pray, except he's going to add the elders to it here. In verse 14, it says, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sin, they will be forgiven of him. The church I grew up in, if you go there this morning, uh, to this very day, you go to the front of the, the church, they have a communion table and on that communion table, they have little vials of oil. And in the church I grew up in, uh, we prayed around the altars. I mean, it was a normal thing for us. I mean, it's part of the service. We invited people to come up, and the deacons would come, and they would, they would take those little vials of oil and dip their finger in it, and then they would smudge people on their forehead and pray for people to be healed. In the doctrinal statements of my church that I grew up in, the 16 fundamentals of truth, and one of those fundamentals of truth was they believed in divine healing. So you read your Bible, you can find a lot of things about healing. You've seen that Jesus healed sicknesses and diseases and things of that nature quite often. So the question we have is, is is that still for today? And I, I want to make sure we understand a few things. I want to address some of the abuses. One of the abuses is the teaching that it is always the will of God for somebody to be healed. There's people who teach that. So then they go with this. There's a Christian, soundly saved, a real Christian, and they're sick. They get a disease, or maybe they have a disability or something. And they pray for them, and they do this very thing. They'll lay hands on them, anoint them with oil, and pray. And they don't get healed. Now what? What they do then is they start saying things like, well, the reason why you didn't get healed is 
must be your lack of faith. Or they'll say, you know, the reason why you didn't get healed must be sin in your life. They're kind of like Job's friends, right? I mean, it makes you feel real good, somebody saying that to you, you know? I mean, uh, but that's devastating to some people's faith. Because they believe, I mean, and you can find scriptures, you can find all kinds of things, you know? And, and, and here's the thing. Here's the thing. I'm just going to give a piece of advice. You may disagree with me. That's okay. You get sick in body. You're a Christian. Go to, get, get prayer as much as you can. Go to the elders of the church. Go to your friends, your neighbors. Get on the prayer list. Whatever it takes. And pray and believe God for God to heal you. And then leave the results up to God. I wish I could tell you that you're always going to be healed. But here's the facts. That church I grew up in, who believed in divine healing, they laid hands on people Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. You know what? I never seen a blind man that could see. I never watched people get up and walk out of wheelchairs. I didn't see any miracles. I didn't see anything on the level of what Jesus did. And those people believed that. They believed in divine healing. Do I believe God can heal? Mm-hmm. I don't want to be like the Pharisees, you know, who didn't believe. And I don't want to be like the Sadducees and totally get rid of all the miracles out. Listen, God can do anything he wants. He can heal anybody at any time. And if you're sick, pray for that. Ask God for it. But don't be condemned if he doesn't. Don't condemn others. When you see that they're not walking in total physical healing all the time. There is the essence and the focus that uh, this is talking about physical sickness, but I've got to admit to you, as I studied this and studied this, and the more I studied, the more I come to the conclusion, I really honestly believe that this is dealing more with spiritual restoration than it is physical healing. I believe that this church that James is dealing with is a church that is on the spiritual decline They have a lot of issues. They have a lot of problems and they're weary and they're tired and they're about to give up on their faith. And here's the solution to their spiritual restoration. Verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. What is the answer to spiritual restoration? What is the answer for these people to be revived? What is the answer for America and the church in America to be restored? It begins with confession, prayers of confession. In 1 John chapter 1, it talks about how Christians are to respond to sin. It tells two ways how we're not to respond. Don't ignore your sin. And then number two, don't deny your sin. What is the proper response for a Christian dealing with his sin? And by the way, as Christians, we deal with our sin. We don't ignore it. We don't deny it. We deal with it. What does he say to do? Confess your sin to God. He's faithful and just to forgive you. What's the proper response to our sin? Confess it. Confess it to God. What does that mean? It's not a generalized statement. It's not, oh God, please forgive me. That's not what he's talking about. It is specific. 
It is getting down to the very specifics of things and calling it what God calls it. We call it sin. We don't rename it and call it an addiction. We call it sin. We don't rename it and call it an alternative lifestyle. We call it a sin. We're agreeing with God. We're coming into agreement with God and we're confessing and we're saying, God, I agree with you. That is a sin. That's confession. It starts with that. But notice the twist that James brings to this. In 1 John, it's confessing to God. But in James, he says you're to confess to one another. Remember this church? Remember chapter 4 in James? This is a church in conflict. This is a church that's fighting one another. This is a church that's not getting along at all. They're having some real problems. They're having some real issues. And he's telling them, listen, you need to get that stuff dealt with. You need to confess to one another. You need to go to that person. You need to talk to that person. You need to get that stuff dealt with. And you need to pray for one another. And look at what it says here. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. That is a powerful healing. The healing of a brother and sister coming together. A healing of spiritual restoration. Listen, physical healing, it's important. I, I, I pray for those friends of mine, people that, that are sick in body. But listen, even if God did do miracles all the time, those, those healings are temporal. It's, it's temporal. It is. It's temporal. Now, it's easy for me to say I'm not, you know, in sick or on my sick bed or nothing, you know. But it's a temporal thing. Spiritual restoration is an eternal thing. How important is it that people be spiritually restored? How important is it that there is a spiritual healing that takes place in the lives of believers? We're to confess our sins to one another. Confession of sin breaks the power of secret sin. When we can partner up with people and we can get with folks and we can talk to them about our issues and we can be open and honest and transparent, I believe that is when the healing will come. I believe that we're in desperate need of that in the Church of America today. We need an outbreak of confession. We need an outbreak of people getting together and praying for one another. I believe it will cause a revival to take place. Our last point this morning. James brings up an Old Testament saint. And we, give, we are given here the example of Elijah. Elijah's example of powerful prayer. Here's a question. Do we believe? that God answers prayer today? Do we believe that God answers big prayers? Do we believe that there's power in praying? He mentions Elijah, and then he has to say a little something about him. Look what it says here in verse 17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Don't exalt him. Don't lift him up as some kind of super saint. Elijah had issues just like me and you do. Read, read the text. Read through the, the Old Testament. Read about what it says about Elijah. Elijah got angry. Elijah got depressed. Elijah ran from trials and trouble. 
Elijah went and hid himself. He's just like us. He's just a normal guy. But Elijah prayed, and he prayed with power. Elijah knew the will of God. Elijah knew that these people had forsaken God. They turned their back on God, and he knew that God had already promised, you do that, you forsake me, I'll make the heavens like brass, and I'll make sure that all your crops fail. That's what God told the Old Testament saints. I'll, I'll, start, I'll start dealing with you. I'll start, I'll start bringing plagues on you. I'll start doing all kinds of stuff because of your idolatry. And sure enough, that's where these people were at. And Elijah knew it, and he prayed according to the will of God. That's another key to answered prayer. Pray according to the will of God. Go to your Bible, read your Bible, and pray the Scriptures Use the word of God and find out what the Bible teaches and pray according to the will of God. There's power in prayer. And here's the deal. Elijah prayed and it affected the entire nation. We're going to have a series the next two or three weeks on the subject of prayer and go deeper into Elijah and his prayer life. It's going to be very good. Bottom line is there's power in prayer. Elijah prayed, it affected the nation. Here's the question. Do you think, man, you can do that? What if Ankeny, what if First Family Church Ankeny determined that we are going to pray in such a way that it will affect the nation? You think, you think God will answer our prayer? You think God could answer? What if, what if our church got together and we prayed, and we prayed for Donald Trump to be soundly saved? What if, what if we prayed for Bill and Hillary Clinton to be saved? Do you think God could save Barack Obama if we prayed? See, that's, that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about us getting into the praying for that kind of stuff. Do you believe God answers prayer today? I believe he does.